Hey, this is Susie Fawcett, and I'm joined in the studio today with Dr. Lachlan Yee. Dr. Yee is a chemist and a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Science and Engineering. Dr. Yee has made significant contributions to the interdisciplinary field of polymer science and bacteria in environmental arenas. Welcome to the studio, Lachlan. Hello, Susie. You published the first ever report on living polymer immobilized bacterial biofilm. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. This was essentially the, the very first project that I had the, uh, the privilege of working on that allowed me to express both my heart and my mind in my science. Up until now, I'd been following a course of chemistry and then trying to lean it more towards an environmental application because I love the planet. We have one home. We need to look after it. And, and so the, the project required us to use these magnificent bacteria that were discovered by the microbiologists at uh, the University of New South Wales, which is where I did my training. And these bacteria are capable of deterring bacteria, fungi, other invertebrates like small marine organisms. And these marine organisms are often found uh, what's known as fouling surfaces that enter the marine environment. And the most common example of this is when, say, you were to leave a boat or your wharf pylons are covered in barnacles and algae. So these bacteria um, are able to stop that sort of growth on surfaces. And we came up with the idea of if we could apply these bacteria to such a surface, could we defend such a surface from the, the uh, settlement of, of barnacles and algae. Uh, so in order to do that, we would have had to make a paint that's essentially living. And that was our phrase for it, actually, living paint. And we immobilized the bacteria, but kept them alive on the surface. And we deployed our prototypes in Sydney Harbour. And we found that we got an effect up to eight weeks, so two months of defending a surface so that was, to the best of our knowledge, the, the first application of this type of living paint in a real-world setting. So a lot of people had done it in the laboratory setting, and we had had some success in the laboratory, but we wanted to try it out in the real world. So Sydney Harbour ended up being the, the first area that we could, we could trial it. I was a sailor, actually, for many years, so I know about anti-fouling. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in boatyards. Mm -hmm. What are the potential effects on marine pollution that your product yeah. may have? Sure. So at the time we were doing that study, tributyl tin, one of the most famous anti-fouling uh, ingredients out there, was undergoing a worldwide ban. And, and so people were turning to other what we could say perhaps semi-toxic type approaches, copper-based uh, solutions and other uh, sort of known toxins. And, and we wanted to go down a different road. It's essentially the area of what's called biomimicry, science that's inspired by nature. What does nature actually do to prevent marine fouling? Because we could imagine that certain surfaces in nature don't want to be inundated with barnacles and algae, and, and we definitely see that. And 
So one example that my colleagues found was um, humble sea lettuce. The green lettuce you often see around rock pools is conspicuously clean, despite being in the marine environment all the time. And my colleagues found that this bacteria that can be isolated from the, the leaves of those sea lettuce is actually helping the sea lettuce to stay clean. So we said, well, there's nature using it as an example to keep a, a surface clean. Can we use that as inspiration for our surface, say, um, like you said, a boat, Susie, or, or something perhaps even more sedentary? We, we like to think because it's a living paint, it's active protection, it, you don't necessarily need the flow of water past your coating to, to sort of prevent that fouling which we see in some of these uh, low surface energy coatings that just make the surface slippery, as it were, for, for algae and barnacle to settle on. Yeah, so we've got a surface that's exuding active chemical species. And, and, and the chemicals that the, the, the bacteria puts out are, are biodegradable. So the, the, the effect should be very local. And um, once, once the, the chemical is sort of diluted out there in the, in the ocean, A, the concentration's too low to be effective anymore, and that would naturally break down as they're, they're purely organic uh, molecules. Are there any other applications other than a marine environment? Mm. So it, it would be a, a matter of isolating different bacteria that are capable of this effect. We did use a control bacteria, a Roseobacter uh, species, that was only antibacterial. And so one could probably extend this type of technology to, say, other types of coding. We have another project that's ongoing in our uh, laboratory that sort of looks at trying to keep surfaces in a medical environment uh, more clean. That's using another natural chemical, uh, nitric oxide, which communicates with bacteria. And so anywhere where you feel you need to influence the natural bacterial or other type of organism interaction with a surface, uh, in particular, in my uh, example, a plastic surface or polymer surface, we could apply some of these techniques either singularly or in combination. Does research into polymers and bacterial film eventually lead to less plastic? Leading to less plastic is, is often a, a desire for the modern generation. We, we have... Uh, I guess, uh, a legacy of waste plastic at the moment and, and an ongoing legacy where where a lot of our waste plastic is, I guess, not being sorted as best as it could be. It's not being, I guess, cleaned. And then there isn't a, a large enough percentage that's being recycled, preferably in an upcycling way or even at least at the same level. However, plastic is so uh, useful. It's light, it's relatively easy to manufacture, and the cost of manufacturing is very low as well. So therefore, to sort of see a world without plastic almost predates the invention of plastic. It's very difficult to see that happening. And better to perhaps head towards a world of smart plastics and then a world of biodegradable plastics and and. and one area our our laboratory, I'm proud to say, our laboratory is working towards is utilising 
biodegradable plastics, and they're out there, and they're out there again uh, in the form of what we see nature is, is capable of producing. So nature produces um, its versions of plastics as well. So, for example, um, bacteria store energy in their body. Now, humans store energy in the body in the terms in, in, in the way of fat cells. Bacteria actually can store energy in their body in terms of biodegradable plastic. <laughs> and so we're able to grow these bacteria and then harvest all of that fat from them, you know, fat in quotation marks, which happens to be a useful plastic. It's, it's known as polyhydroxyalkanoate. And that's used in packaging in the modern day now and, and will simply uh, biodegrade down into CO2 and water. On the other hand, I'm, I've started a, a line of investigation in our group which uh, harnesses insects uh, and, and in particular the black soldier fly uh, which is capable of producing a, a biodegradable plastic um, in, in its exoskeleton on its body and so again we now have a ready source of biodegradable plastic that is also taking care of a waste stream as well because you can pr provide all of these black soldier fly larvae with all of your waste organics and they will just consume them and then produce these plastics amongst other uh, side products as well. So, um, And living in Australia and in particular the northern rivers, there's no shortage of black soldier flies. Yes, correct. <laughs> yes. And, and they are quite prevalent around the world. Um, I was pleased to find at uh, a museum in Tasmania, there was actually sighting in Tasmania, which you think would be too cold. Uh, but there's, it's, it's very rare down in the cold regions. And so this, this technology may have limited application in the colder regions of the world. But as you mentioned, anywhere from tropical to temperate type environments, we think that yeah, there is a place for increased black soldier fly usage. That's the first time I've heard about the black soldier fly and it's a potential for doing good. So this is great news. Recently, the federal Morrison government released its National Plastics Plan 2021. While the implementation of the plan is voluntary, the government hopes to phase out the use of polystyrene packaging in 2022 and to reduce plastic litter and microplastics leaking into the ocean. Do you think the government is doing enough to combat this problem of increasing urgency? I feel the government is trying hard to find a balance, certainly between the commercial sector, which is manufacturing plastic. We have, you know, we're proud to, to have one of these great uh, industries in Australia, Replas, that's actually very actively recycling plastic. And I think, I'd like to think the government is encouraging that sort of activity as well as uh, plastic manufacturers such as Lyondell Bissell, one of the largest polypropylene manufacturers here in Australia. So we have industry here in Australia, manufacturing industry, which we, well, I'd like to think is, is very important for Australia to be moving forward. Uh, we're very well known for our, our raw materials and raw resources, but our future probably lies with a mixture of that and manufacturing, as we've seen the more mature, successful countries around the world. Now, the government, I feel, is supporting plastic research in terms of uh, research dollars. And so several of my polymer plastic researching colleagues around Australia have been successful in acquiring uh, Australian government funding, including ourselves, 
for example, through the CRC program, the Cooperative Research Centres program, and we're privileged to have a grant in active right now here at Southern Cross that works with a, an industry group, a small little industry group out of Coffs Harbour known as Plastic Collective. And we're about finding ways to recycle plastic for small, regional and remote and indigenous communities uh, in Australia. And so we've been given a sizable grant to, to carry that out. And, and we're approaching it in the way of building shipping containers that are self-contained and provide the tools and technology as well as the educational training for these remote uh, areas to, to process their plastics, which we've seen worldwide, if that technology wasn't there, they tend to go to very basic ways to deal with their plastic, either straight into streams that end up in the ocean, or perhaps equally as bad, uh, incinerating the plastic, but incinerating it in such a way that it's quite harmful to the environment and human health. Um, so there have been examples of, for example, incinerating polyvinyl chloride, which we know releases chlorines, and, and, and the children nearby are inhaling this, uh, and it's very harmful for their lungs. So providing a tool, a kit, for these uh, groups to be able to process their plastic is, well, it just feels very satisfying. Is this called the Schroeder Project? That's correct, yes. So the, the Schroeder is the, uh, it's a combination of words where you can shred the plastic, therefore bringing it down into a particle size that can be remelted, reworked. Uh, and the uh, extruder part, which is the melting of plastic, to have that consistent mix and consistent form that's in a sort of a continuous stream that you can then now produce thread, uh, and there's been examples of artisans using this thread to, to manufacture baskets. So that's purely from ocean plastic that's regathered from the ocean. And then you can produce some really nice little baskets to, to carry around uh, items with. Um, they're fairly long wearing and we badge them so that they can then return back to the, the Schroeder and, and be reprocessed again. So we have a couple of master students here at, at Southern Cross that are currently working on the chemical properties and the physical properties of recycling these plastics. Wow, sounds like an amazing project. I saw somewhere recently that somebody's making bikinis out of recycled marine plastic. Wow, I haven't come across that project. Mm. It probably stands to reason we could make anything out of anything, it does tend, tend to start to come down to human choice and human preference. What we like to think about is, is, is educating people. And so perhaps, uh, although it may not feel so comfortable, uh, the knowledge that they're contributing to, to a better cycle or a more of a cradle-to-cradle -cradle, uh, philosophy um, tends to sway them to, to use the product. So... Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I've not come across the bikini. So thanks for putting that on my radar. I'll keep an eye out for that. Um, I guess I've been sort of looking at the, the pallets that often big shipping projects use. Those can be made from recycled plastic. Um, and we, we more well known are the park benches that we see. So for example, Woolies proudly uh, displays their replas plastic bench inside their store to say, uh, your plastic bags that you've returned to our store has contributed to this uh, bench. Yeah. 
Interestingly, you've published lately on gaming and urban design. Can you talk us through that research? <laughs> sure. Uh, just a little bit of background for me and, and, and probably why I don't, I'm not too harsh on, on the modern student that's gaming every now and then. Uh, you see them gaming around campus uh, is because, yeah, A, it's, it's a relaxed time. It does give them a refresh from their studies. But gaming for me back in the, I guess you could say the 80s and the 90s, really engaged my mind to try and harness a lot of the computer energy. Back then, the, the technology was fairly limited. Speed was an issue. Internet speeds were very slow. And so you needed to be fairly clever with your technology in order to get the most out of your computer. And that has led me to the modern day to now be able to provide tech support for my colleagues um, and my research laboratory. Um, we're very comfortable with exploring new software and, and new technology. And that technophobia doesn't sort of sort of slow us down in terms of, of harnessing arguably one of our human strengths, uh, uh, technology. That being said, when I... Uh, discovered a, a new colleague joining Southern Cross. The opportunity was to sort of have a walking meeting and, and um, bring out Pokemon Go uh, as this augmented reality uh, technology to just sort of play and have a meeting at the same time. And she coming from a uh, town planning uh, background and me coming from uh, chemistry plastics background, we sort of wrapped our heads as to how we could possibly collaborate together in order to work on a project together and and therefore continue that sort of mentoring uh, cycle. Yeah, and it, and it got as far as my love of augmented reality, which we know um, is used in the science fields to sort of make science a lot more approachable, and her from a town planning point of view as to, well, could we use such a technology to encourage people to explore public spaces and, and perhaps even collect data on how people use those public spaces so that town planners can then use that as feedback and develop better and more human-friendly uh, public spaces. So yeah, that's how that project came about and we ended up uh, surveying nearly a thousand Australians on, on Pokemon Go. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah. The paper suggests playing Pokemon Go in public spaces can improve mental health physical health and encourage a sense of community connection yeah definitely uh, we we found that in our survey we we drilled down quite a lot into the survey there was a lot of open-ended questions which gave people of all sorts of ages to to ex, uh, express their joy or disdain of of, of uh, pokemon but yeah generally speaking we came across uh, bulk results in those areas that you talk about, Susie. The physical aspect, people claiming how they were moving a lot more uh, rather than a sedentary video game where you tend to sit on the couch, you're out active, you're being outdoorsy and um, people claiming they're losing weight and people claiming they're able to be out with friends, meet like-minded people or, or make new friends. So... Often Pokemon Go is pretty clever in that it can bring a group of people gathering together and they work together rather than against each other. So there isn't that sort of competition element as such, but a more of a cooperative element. And uh, so people end up um, making new friends. And I personally made a few new friends around um, the Lismore area. So, yeah, it was very strong for that. And um, what we found was... Uh, unexpected, but, but really a, a nice plus was that people visiting 
say, places along the Ballina Wall that they would not have visited uh, had it not been for Pokemon Go. And because you do need to pause in the game and spend an appreciable amount of time, suddenly you've got time to reflect on the signage that's there or, or take in a bit of the heritage history that's there uh, from the information that's there. So th we, we found that this, there was an educational aspect as well. Okay, I'm intrigued now. What's your top tip? What's your favorite place to go and play Pokemon Go? <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And that there are some sort of uh, uh, real, I guess, well-known places. People often move around the Lismore CBD because it's so rich for, for Pokemon uh, stops and, 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 and activity. Um, often you'll see community days where they're encouraging people to just go out and catch fairly rare Pokemon. So you see the people doing laps of the, <laughs> the Lismore town. And the, and the Ballina Wall uh, is another a very, very popular place because of the fact that you're getting that fresh air, you're out in the sunshine, and you can um, really collect a lot of uh, Pokemon activity just on one fairly short walk. So yeah, we, we find that that's, that's very good. But I mean, I, I loved the whole aspect of even just these relatively remote Pokemon stops for children to play on long drives with their parents when they stop at a, at a rest area. Sometimes there'd be some Pokemon aspect there too. So I think the, the game manufacturers were very clever in sort of bringing together community. And I think it's like one of the most downloaded apps on um, the app stores around the world. So yeah, very clever. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. haven't had a go, but I'm, I'm feeling inspired. How does chemistry relate to augmented reality? Sure. So as a, as a chemistry educator, I'm often very intrigued by technology or just any different ways I can reach out to my students and help them see the, the joy, I think, the necessity to, to understand chemistry in order to, to understand science and, and the way things work in the real world. Augmented reality is another vehicle for that. It allows us to use our smartphones, which are so commonplace these days, to explore a world that is often hard to see. Uh, we, we're talking in terms of atoms here, molecules, which are way, way below the size scale that the human eye is capable of seeing. So we tend to have to rely on videos or graphical scientific models that sort of show us an imaginary world, as it were, uh, of chemistry. But, but then to have your phone and, and be able to play with molecules on your phone and see them there uh, joining together on the desk, uh, which is augmented reality. And even better still, if you have the capabilities of putting on, say, a Google Cardboard or, or an Oculus Quest uh, over your eyes and then, and then immersing yourself in, say, a high-tech chemistry laboratory that you, you may not be able to do in, say, um, remote uh, 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 areas of, of central Australia, then now that chemistry is within reach and you can start to play and explore the world of chemistry without much uh, investment of money so that that's i think is is a real plus uh, of that sort of technology and we are looking at exploring this space a lot more um southern cross university now has a community of of like-minded augmented uh, and and virtual reality 
academics. We came together last year and the university is looking at this space. And um, what's great is that we have a, a member on that committee from just about every faculty and, and area of discipline in our university. So we, we come at it from sports science angle. We come at it from medical and health where students are exploring midwifery in, in, a, in, a, in a birthing suite before they have to go and do it for real life. And so they, they get that atmosphere. If you've got these 3D headphones on, you can hear the baby crying. You can hear the mother in distress. It's, it's quite uh, immersive. It can be quite confronting as well. So we have a lawyer on the team and, and he's reminding us of the legalities and, and, and sometimes how this can have quite a psychological effect on people. So we, we need to be mindful of that. But I think that's very healthy debate in order to come up with a technology that allows uh, students to arguably explore a limitless world. Yeah, And you, you can go and be on the space station without having to be there and, 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 and start to get an appreciation of that, perhaps that claustrophobic type living. I hadn't thought about all of these things going on in the background. So interesting to to listen to. Lachlan, you're a lecturer in chemistry at Southern Cross University. Can you tell us about what a student of chemistry can expect here? Sure. Look, we're very proud of the way we teach chemistry in, in our Faculty of Science and Engineering. And I, being a, a, a lecturer and a teacher that believes Everybody can learn everything. I'd like to say that we, we teach chemistry to the completely uninitiated. My, and one of my catchphrases is that even if you've not unpacked the word science or come across the word science in your schooling right up until now, um, high schooling, then you can come and learn the basics from us. And, and you will emerge from chemistry uh, with a grounding that allows you to then go on and explore further yourself. You'll be able to pick up chemistry texts and start to understand the language of chemistry. You'll be able to do the basic calculations that will get you that foundation and then you will be able to explore what you need to increase your knowledge and, and go on and learn. So uh, I think that that's one of the big pluses uh, of the way we teach chemistry here at Southern Cross. And I've got several years of student feedback that sort of emphasizes that. Uh, I think one of the big things we address is what's known as chemophobia, the anxiety of the word chemistry itself and the whole concept. Well, I'm an art student. I understand that word. Yeah. Mm. And, and so getting past that and showing the students how we're doing active research in that area. I presented recently at a Queensland educational conference on, on our um, sort of approach and, and also from my background in, in martial arts and karate and, and training in, in, a, in a martial arts dojo, how we can even incorporate some of the great elements of that training aspect to sort of show students that, hey, you can learn to, to punch well, you can learn to self-defend yourself well, you can learn chemistry as well. You just need to show the student a disciplined approach, the basic grounding, uh, and then give them plenty of opportunity to practice, practice and drill it out much like you do in a karate dojo um, and and they eventually get it uh, balancing equations then be, starts to become second nature to them 
How important to you is a transdisciplinary approach? It's extremely important, I think. I find uh, solutions that we talked about from nature uh, often incorporate a multi-strategy approach. And, and, and so, uh, and even from my early days of trying to incorporate my computing training, my physics training and my chemistry training all together, I feel has brought me here. It's certainly a tougher journey. You have to learn so many different areas simultaneously. And so that tends to slow you down rather than if you were a pure specialist. But the enrichment is there and you can often find synergies and, 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 and I wouldn't say shortcuts, but sort of enhancements. So understanding a bit of the physics allowed me to sort of uh, really get on top of what was going on at chemistry molecules at that level. And that really helped my, my PhD work. So, yeah, I think uh, that it certainly have a speciality. So mine is plastics and chemistry, but never be afraid to try and enhance that from other fields. And so working with people like yourself, Susie, artists, um, that can look at my work through different eyes, through different lenses, ask really challenging questions, helps me see a world from a different angle and just say, okay, what if we could you know, help artists see our world a bit more? And what do the artists help us see that we cannot see? Yeah, mm. so um, mm. I think it's, it's just essential, really essential. Um, the, the Faculty of Science and Engineering is headed in that, direction now uh, with the way we set up our degrees because we want students to have that systems-based approach it's it's what we see in this network of nature that, that you need to look after water you need to look after soil you need to look after your your atmosphere your chemistry or simultaneously to to say produce a, a sustainable farming practice mm. now it sounds like i'm in an indigenous knowledge lecture where i'm learning about connection and how everything is connected. Mm. Interesting. Tell me, what about field work? What sort of field work's undertaken for their students? Sure. Um, field work happens to be one of the strengths of our faculty here at Southern Cross, uh, allowing students to walk amongst the trees and the forests in our forestry degree. In chemistry, we, we allow the students to go out and sample the water quality of local rock pools or local uh, water bodies, um, for example, the holding dam here at Southern Cross, and explore the chemistry. Uh, I think that's so essential because it, it allows students to, to see firsthand, tactile, um, visual, immersive, uh, what we're trying to teach them in books and, 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 and videos and, and augmented reality molecules. Uh, it allows students to practice the skills that they learn in the laboratory and know that those skills are relevant out in the real world. Hence, our students become very employable too because they've had that hands-on fieldwork experience. They can sort of hit the ground running when they're out there with their industry members and, and our uh, sort of engagement of industry where students are able to go out and work in industry in their third years often leads to great career prospects. You know, we've had many a story where students have essentially got a job before they've even finished their degree. In fact, the, the industry members say, hurry up, please finish your degree so you can start with us as soon as possible. So, Must also help to foster good networks, 
great relationships between students and a really good sense of teamwork, of how to be a team player. Precisely. Yeah, the, the bonding, um, working together as teams, it's so important because these skills are going to stand you in great stead out there in the career world. It's very rare for people to work alone. You can see often people tout the success of Elon Musk. And yes, he is a very clever man, but look at the amount of very clever people he surrounded himself with. And they're working as powerful teams. Arguably, the iPhone was only produced through a, a team of amazing uh, engineers and, and software engineers. So, uh, yeah, that those sort of skills, I'd like to think, are, are taught right across uh, Southern Cross. And, and, and putting students together and having that challenge, having that challenge of feeling like, well, I seem to be doing all the work here in this team. What's going on there? But but knowing those sort of feelings, understanding the psychology uh, behind those feelings, I think is important uh, to, to share with students. And then learning how a team can really harness the strengths of each individual and cover for each other's weaknesses as well. I think... Uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Mm. Yeah. And finally, the science degree has had quite a transformation this year. Can you talk about all of the options students now have under the one degree? Mm. So uh, now the the former degrees where you would say do a Bachelor of Forestry uh, Science now all come under the Bachelor of Science. And so students are now encouraged to choose a specialisation. And we have the four major specialisations. We have the environmental science uh, specialisation, earth and environmental science. We have the marine science, which we're very well known for. We have the National Marine Science Centre, for example, in Coffs Harbour. And we have the forestry science. Uh, the forestry industry has benefited a lot from, from our graduates here at Southern Cross. And our fairly new one, which is the regenerative agriculture uh, specialization which we're finding is a huge i guess draw card for for farmers that are out there that are aware that practices could improve practices um, have room to grow to be way more sustainable enhance the land that they're they're carrying out their agricultural practices on and so yeah they're coming back and and often a very mature age and, and want to reskill and relearn so that's the exciting part of this Bachelor of Science coming under one umbrella is that the the degrees can, or specialisation, sorry, in this in this case can really speak to one another. Students are not necessarily have to make a decision right up front. The first year is a common core uh, knowledge year, so you can just get underway. And I encourage students to do that because keeping a, a mind on that horizon, knowing where you, you generally are going with your head and your heart should inform your choices in the now. And, and that way, you're still moving towards those long-term goals. Um, the journey of, of science is long, and it's, it, it does take time, uh, but it's very fulfilling. And, and, it, and the more you can sort of feel yourself progressing towards those long-term goals, it sort of reinforces it. So... Um, speaking from me personally, I always sort of knew I was pretty good at chemistry and I, I, I definitely cared for the environment, but I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be a, a lecturer in, in one day. And I discovered teaching through that because I became 
fairly skilled in these areas and I started head head towards mastery, I could pass that knowledge on and I, I found, wow, I really enjoy doing this. So now now I can seek out uh, a career combining all of these. And uh, and so, yeah, here, here I am at Southern Cross and, and I find myself as the course coordinator for the Bachelor of Science too. So that that's excellent too, to, to sort of help um, nurture the next generation because I know... I'm not getting any younger. I feel like I'm approaching the the mid part of my life. So I need to train the next generation coming through to carry on this great work. It's been a wonderful pleasure to sit with you this afternoon and and, and learn such an interesting story. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Susie. Yeah. yeah.